Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, it's Monday afternoon, I guess. And I'm going to try to hop around, as I always say, beginning when I have a chance. Very busy day. Writing up the lectures I'm doing in Lithuania. But finish one, I'm waiting for that to get edited. Um, some uh, Today's podcast is being uh, sponsored by uh, Carol Unger, who lives in Israel. She wrote to me a while ago. If I would do something about one of her relatives. And I said, oh my God, who, uh, you know, whoever that is. People write about, you know, their uncle who was a, you know, a sheikh somewhere or whatever. And I said, who's your relative? The Tavua Shore. Oh, the Tavua Shore, that's easy. <laughs> that's like a big person. I'll see you up here. So I'm going to speak today about the Tavua Shore. Um, and... Uh, this is a name I don't think most people are familiar with, even though you should, if you're a certain type. The person we're speaking about today was a famous rabbi in Poland, late 1600s, early 1700s. I've done many of them. He's famous if you know about him. He lived from uh, 1673 to 1637, I think. He flipped, the, he flipped the, the, the numbers. which me, and, and that actually drew significance to that. Now, I'll tell you what I mean. Um, here's someone who lived as a galaxy honor. At this time I'm talking about, when he was living, the old kingdom of Poland, Lithuania, still existed. I've spoken about many, many times. I'm actually, as I said before, now doing a lecture series in which we're chopping up into fine pieces the exact difference between Poland and Lithuania. But... Once upon a time, there wasn't that much of a difference to it. And it was the Poland part and the Lithuanian part. And if you have any idea what I'm talking about whatsoever, in the southeastern area, uh, Brody, it's all, it's all what we call today Ukraine, big Jewish area. Now, if he's born in the 1670s, it was he's born 20 years or so, after Chmelnitsky massacres, there's Tachbatat. This is the period when a large part of the Jewish population of that part of the world, eastern uh, Ukraine, uh, was massacred by the Cossacks or carried off as slaves by the Tatars, what we refer to as Xeris Tachbatat. Which was a very good book that just came out, by the way, by Professor Teller. Anyway, um, now, the Jews were really messed over by this. Nobody knows how many were tortured and burned and cut up and this and that and the other terrible things. But it was in the thousands and maybe tens of thousands. But what happens when it's over? Life goes on. You understand? In the old days, if some terrible Xera hit someplace, it was a bummer. And then when it's over, they didn't have like, uh, you know, compensation funds. And didn't have psychologists to help you deal with the trauma, post-traumatic syndrome. 
None of that existed. People just picked up the pieces and, and moved on. And if he lived, our hero, in the eastern Galicia, which is really Ukrainian area, Polish nobleman in the Ukrainian area, and the whole shot of Xeris Takhvatat was Ukrainians rose and killed the Poles. So in tempestuous times, without going to too many details, Poland was really messed up and busted. However, eventually they got their act together in that Kufa. And that's called the Peace of Andrew Selvo, so that's uh, 1672. So our hero today, the Tua who's uh, Alexander Shore, uh, lived right after the uh, things got better. It's like myself, you know, my generation born after the, the Holocaust. You know what I'm saying? You know, that's the right time to be born after it's over. And he lived to be 60, 65, I guess 64 years old if you count it up. And uh, spent all of his life in that area. So it's a Polish rabbi. Now, sure, the family is very the one of the elite families in Poland. And this is what they call the elites of yesteryear, where they combine money and uh, Torah knowledge. How do you get the money and Torah knowledge? Two ways. One way is by being a businessman in addition to being a Talmud Chacham. That's one way. And that's what our hero did. Um, another way is to marry a rich girl. <laughs> And which that's what also our hero and many others did. Marriages are, especially in the old days, totally economical. They're based on economic considerations. Nowadays, they say it's supposed to be based on love. There's some truth to that, but a lot of it hides in sort of a Jane Austen way. Um, the fact that what's called love marriage is really based on economic considerations. But be that as it may, we're talking about somebody, therefore was very typical of the rabbinical elite of the kingdom of Poland, Lithuania in the 1500s, 1700s. And there were many, many like him. So why is he famous? What, what, what's he mean? He wrote a safer. Big deal. If I told you how many of these rabbis you never heard of wrote swarm that you never heard of, they had five minutes of fame. They really did. Honest. I'm not, you know, you know, I'm not being funny. But nobody nowadays ever used them. Unless you go to some bookstore from some obscure reason the descendants now decide that the great great something back there, somebody chashev and somebody now is rich, so therefore he, he pays for a machon to republish it. But it never had any fame. Our hero is different. Okay, he actually wrote something that took off. So we're dealing with Alexander Shore, who's a nephew, by the way, to Taurus Chaim. A lot of these people, like I said, were elite families, and elite families in this case where there were some serious Talmudic chachamim. I mean, seriously, I'm talking about Briskarov. I'm talking about the Briskarov of the 1500s, the Briskarov of the 1600s. That's like an uncle and a grandfather, great uncle, and all the rest of it. Now, I want to be clear. I want to tell you something you don't know. The great uncle was Ephraim Zalman Shore. The person we're talking about today is Alexander Shore. You say, what's the difference? The great uncle, Ephraim Zalman Shore, who was a Briskarov in the 1500s, he wrote a book called Tvuas Shore. The, the hero we're dealing with today, the, the great nephew, wrote Tvuas Shore. I can guarantee you right now, the Tvuas Shore is an unknown safer, like I just said. The Tvuas Shore is the opposite of an unknown safer. So it's interesting, but you know, a lot of people you you might possibly uh, make the mistake on that. Uh, the Tvuas Shore is sometimes some I never seen it even. It's like a kitzer of base Yosef or something like that. Um, the Tvuosho is something different, I'll speak about it in a second. So, here we're dealing with Poland when it was 
picking itself up after all the catastrophes that hit it in the Khmelnytsky. And after the Khmelnytsky massacres, Poland was invaded by the Swedish army and then by the Russian army. They had a terrible time. And when I say the Poles were invaded, the Jewish communities were right in the middle and took it on the chin. So it was really not an easiest time to live. The two assured that we're dealing with our hero today, therefore, right, um, come from a very illustrious family. You know, I'll tell you a good story. <laughs> what the heck? The uncle who, the great uncle who wrote to As Shore, was like a brisk rabbi, was a big rabbi in uh, 15, in the 16, early 1600s. And he married, I think, for, if I remember correctly, from his worst, first wife, he didn't make children. And then he married at 70 years old when he was 70, married a young girl. Now, it's not what you think. At least, this is how the story goes. It's not what you think. Her father was the richest Jew in Poland, Shaw Wall. Maybe somebody might be related to him. There's a legend that he was king of Poland for a day. That's a bunch of baloney, but it goes to show you how rich and powerful he was. Shaw Wall. And the story goes, this Shaw Wall had a daughter, and um, he's supposed to marry a certain person. I forget who it was. Maybe it was the Pnei Yeshua, the first Pnei Yeshua, possibly. can't remember the name exactly. Listen to the story. And um, that's who the Shaduchim was supposed to be for. And then the father, Shawal, who was such a rich millionaire, he decided that this son-in-law isn't a big enough god all. In other words, let's put it this way. If I'm rich, I want my daughter to marry next god all door. I mean a god all door. I'm not settling for a second, right? You know, I want Aaron Cutler. <laughs> you give me something less than that, I'm not getting my value See the mentality of the capitalist, you know? If I'm buying Torah, I want the top quality. I don't want somebody who's a B-level. <laughs> right? And so, uh, even though most of us would say the Shalos was a big guy, the story goes it wasn't big enough for him, and he broke the Shidduch, which he's not supposed to do. That's the story. And as a result, the people in the community got so angry over this. Now, you might ask me a question. What's it, your business... We're going on two rich people's shidduch. This is hawking in the back of shows. You know that. Jews do this. Today called Shiva World. These other sites, you know. They hawk about somebody else's business. Right? Now, Mrs. Unger told me she wrote a Kitzer biography of the Chavetz Chaim. You know, does Chavetz Chaim have any influence today? Chavetz Chaim has influence on some, not on others. The hawkers are always wanting to know what's the latest thing going on. Anyway, here's how the story goes. That the Jews in the community got so angry... It's breaking the shidduch. They thought it's babe. They said, we'll fix him, the rich guy, who, even though they write in his form, he was big and meh, obviously was not popular. This is in Krakow. Krakow was the capital city of Poland at that time. They went to, the story is, they went to the king, who I would imagine would be Sigismund II, because I was just talking about him, who was a, a famous Lothario, and they said, there's this beautiful Jewish girl who's like 20 years old, 19 years old. And, uh, you know, he just broke the shirk, And she's a hot item and so on and so forth. So that the king would uh, kidnap her. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Bring her to me. Because such things happen. This is why our ancestors used to marry young gays. Because you get too old and pretty. They'd be 17, 18, 19 years old. You know, some nobleman will grab you. This is, I'm sorry, this was the life. And so they told the king... And the story is, the king said, wow, I want to find out who this girl is, right? Sounds like a knockout. 
and he gave orders, the story goes, to have the girl brought to him, in which case, I vape. And the story is that um, when the father found out about it, he like freaked, and he went to the rabbi, who was 70 years old and was a widower, and he said, they're coming to get my daughter in 10 minutes. Uh, marry her right now. Right? Save her from a fate worse than death. Become the, the mistress or whatever, the king of Poland. And so he married her, and they had children. Uh, I forget which shore that was. All the, all, all, each one of these was a famous rabbi once upon a time. This is how life was once upon a time. I don't know if that story is exactly true, because I don't. I don't know if this is true. But those kind of things did happen. I'm just sharing that with you. Those kind of things did happen. Now, not to our hero. He was uh, from a different branch. As I say, he was a nephew of the Taurus Chaim, who is Avram Chaim Shore. Taurus Chaim is a fantastic safer. I always regret when I, years ago, did the art scroll um, Sanhedrin. I did, uh, what did I do? Perchelik, which is all they got to That's what they gave me to do. And... Uh, I had numbers for him to work with. And I remember him in the Heshi wind up, and he said, are you using the Taurus Chaim? And I didn't even give a thought to it. But on the other hand, I saw it quoted a lot in the Margolisium, um, you know, collects all those things. And that's how I use it. But later I got a hold of the Taurus Chaim. I didn't have it at the time. I don't know why. It didn't come out a nice edition. I didn't have it at the time. And it was really, I really strongly, to this day I regret it. Even though I was a lot, what I wrote in was a lot of notes. Torah's kind is very good. So these are families of serious Hamidachachamim. Now, for our hero, right, um, there's not much to talk about, but there is. And what do I mean by that? Um, he lived all his life in Galicia, in the eastern part, in that area. He was a rabbi for a short time, didn't like it. Um, and so he gave it to Rabbanus, and he went to be a businessman. But I think it was in the booze business, if I remember correctly, which is a very common Jewish profession at that time. You know, one of the main sources of income, Jews made money back in the old Poland, was they would lease from the noblemen who owned everything. You know, these these magnates own gigantic territories, like I say, sometimes half the size of Maryland, really. And they would have all these peasants who were... Evacanines of theirs, they're slaves, and um, they have what they call propination, which means the right to run the inn and sell the vodka. And Jews would lease this. So basically, what it means is I'm Jewish, I go to the nobleman, here's a neighborhood, so and so many peasants live there. The nobleman says, like this, they, I own them, so therefore, any money they have, they can only spend in my store. And my store, is uh I forget what they call it, but it's gonna be a combination of the really this is really true. A combination of a bar, uh a seven eleven in addition to the bar. It's also gonna be like a diner. It really is. I'm not finished. It's also gonna be a best western motel. Um it's also gonna be local dance hall. And this is what the Jews used to run. Why the Jew? He said afraid to give it to a guy he'll drink up all the, the, the schnapps. You see? Can't trust them. Jews don't drink. This was the reputation. Now, obviously, if you look in Charles and Chubas, you find sometimes they're Jewish alcoholics. There were then as there are now. But it was less. I think everybody's familiar with the fact 
that in our generation, the Jews have westernized and adapted American ways in so much that alcoholism is a big problem among us. Right? You know, people knock back a lot of booze. This, but I think you also are familiar with the fact that a generation, certainly two generations ago, this was not the case. As the expression goes, the Jews used to know how to hold the liquor. They used to go and back a show and drink, you know, have a shot or two, you know, during laning and all. It's all wrong, but I'm just saying, kiddish Risham. But it wasn't an elaborate business like you're talking about now. And you certainly don't have all these fancy schmancy, you know, hundreds of dollars worth of uh, whatever they call it, the scotch and, and, and the, all the fancy stuff. So um, you can see what I'm arts I am in this. However, uh, this was the, the reputation of the Jews, and therefore they used to get these kind of concessions. So that's what our hero did. He leased, uh, he was in the, in, in the Yai and Sarv business, which means in the vodka business. And that was something, you, you know, you can make a living. So here's a guy who lives to be in his 60s, who's um, living in um, Poland in the period that I just spoke about, after when Poland's trying to, re- to put, put itself together again after it's been invaded many times. The Jewish communities are trying to reconstitute themselves after they've been invaded many times. And pillaged and looted and raped and arson and who knows what. And uh, that's important for our story. But all I'm going to say is that um, he lives his life in this area. And um, how should I put it? He sits and learns. Right? Now, that's all you would say about the life. You know, he married whoever he married. But he wrote a book, and uh, the book took off. That made it famous. Now, I'll tell you what I mean. He wrote a book on Kasha, on Shita. A couple weeks ago, I mentioned Rabbi Yaakov Weil in the 1400s in Germany. He was the big rabbi at that time, the big Palachic authority. And Rabbi Yaakov Weil, like our hero today, lived in a post Corbin environment. You hear what I just said? There are Jews who live through Chorbans. That's one phenomenon. And then there's a different phenomenon called the one who lives at the time when they pick up the pieces. Each of these, and there are those who live when in the good times. So you have to know your history. Who lived when? Did they live in a good time, in a good place, in a bad time, bad place, and so forth. Each one has certain characteristics. One of the characteristics of those who live through and live past bad times is that they usually find themselves in situations in which the Yiddishkeit has crashed for perfectly understandable reasons. To build up a regular Jewish civilization, you need a long time of peace and a lot of learning, and then it just has to come together. You understand? I'll give you an example. I live in Baltimore. Baltimore today is not like what it was when I was a kid. Uh, you have a ton of from people today. And not only from people, B'nai Torah, people know how to learn a lot. This is very rare. I mean, there were from Jews in Baltimore when I was growing up, but a much, much smaller number. And their ranks included fewer people know how to learn. Now, what's the reason for all this? Well, there's a yeshiva here. Yeshiva got big. People settled down. They grew in town. They brought in other yeshivas. In addition to that, yeah, the art school came along, and the, the, the Dafyami came along. Meaning, there are reasons for the growth. That's always the way it is. 
you know, you look at the time they lived, and then there are challenges, and then are the challenges met. Challenges can make people depressed, or challenges can trigger you to become more energetic and um, uh, produce a great works and a great society. Now, in the case I'm talking about, Abiyaka Wild lived in the 1400s after a lot of terrible massacres and uh, the Black Death, you know, the bubonic plague, all kinds of things like that. And the result is that all these nice communities fell apart and were destroyed by events. Something similar to what happened in the Holocaust. Not exactly, because the Holocaust, they're exterminated, you know, whole communities, but something similar to that. So if somebody came to Lithuania in 1945 and 1946, not going to be what it was before. So in Germany, in the time of Jakob Weil, he uh, wrote to Charles and Chubas, and he tried to fix things up to restore some order because Jewish life requires a certain amount of order. Gitin, Kedushin, Gerushas, all kinds of things, mikvahs, you know. And one of the big areas, maybe the biggest, is Kashrus. Kashrus. And he wrote a famous book on Hilkas Kashrus as a practical guide for Shokhtim. So here we get to the heart of what I want to talk about. Used to have a lot of small communities out there, right? Uh, today the trend is to urbanize. Most people in America are moving to Baltimore, to Muncie, to Lakewood, you know, those kind of places. But in the old country, a lot of times you had, especially in the kingdom of Poland, hundreds, maybe thousands of villages, shtetlach. Well, people eat. So every place has to have a shokhut or two. Or a traveling shokhut. Right? Now, that's a lot of shokhut. It was highly decentralized. not like today. You see, where it's a business, it's, it's factories, it's centralized. So, there's a plus and minus to having the shkhut decentralized. The minus, as everybody knows, will tell you, if producing too many animals is going to make mistakes. Because industrial scale is killing thousands. Right? Tell me what's the shrita situation in Israel for millions of people. Tell me what's the shrita situation in American communities like Baltimore, Lakewood, elsewhere, where, you know, talking about shafting thousands of behemoths, um, thousands, thousands of chickens, things like that. I know something about it. I have, it's hard to keep it to standards. On the other hand, since it's centralized, so you have mashkiyas watching the whole time, and that increases the quality. But in the old days, in Europe, there's a, a shokhat here, a shokhat there, a shokhat there, little community here, little community. Who can keep track of all these guys? So here you have a village of 10, 20. I'm trying to show you how life was lived. You have a family of 10 or 20, uh, a community of 10 or 20 families, perhaps, very common. They got to eat. They're going to have a shokhat. They'll either employ one or the employment together with the three or four other villages around there. So my village has 20 Jewish families. And here's another village a few miles away. Another village, let's say all together is 100 families. I'm just making this up. My families will employ a shechet. Who are you employing? Who do you get? You understand? Who do you get? I'm getting so-and-so. How do you know he's got a gochrito? Well, he says he does. He says he's got a piece of paper. He says he's got a kabbalah. You see what I'm saying? In other words, the opportunities for phonies or for B-level people, or for or inadequate shita, very common, very possible. 
in that situation. Not much of a centralized control. In a city, things were supposed to be better. So he went to Krakow, Lublin, Brody, you know, a place like Vilna. So it's supposed to be a, a basin, and you have a better control on the street that you hope. Although the Shals and Shubas are full of all kinds of cases, as you can imagine. But still, it's a better hope. You know, in Vilna, there's somebody to, to go and inspect. But what about, you know, in, in some little village somewhere, some little shtetl somewhere? Who's in, who's in charge? So you're basically putting yourself in the hands hoping the local shokhet. How do you know the shokhet's any good? The public doesn't know. What does the public know about shkita? Can they go and feel the knife to see if it's a, is a, is a pegim or not? The public doesn't understand that stuff. So I say, well, he's got a long beard. Longa pay is. You understand? Know you know, he looks like he's a me or whatever. And uh, we all know that's worth garnished, right? Some biggest uh, criminals that would go around with the longa pekka, you know, with the longa reko. So how do you know he's a good shechet? It's a good question. So it's supposed to be any rub or whatever comes by, he's supposed to look and, and investigate, show me the knife, and so forth. Yeah, it happens, it doesn't happen, especially in small communities. So all I'm trying to say is that there's always a problem, an existential problem, of shita, physical shita, out there in the uh, real world. Um, again, I live in America. X number of years ago, five, six years ago, I did a trip to Italy with a group that I led. One of the places they went was uh, Livorno. Very interesting community, Leghorn. And we arranged with the, you know, with my travel guys that uh, they wanted to know, because in Italy, these places have kills. And so my group was going to be lunchtime in Livorno. And they said, listen, you know, we'll serve the lunch in the shoal. That's how they do it over there. And they said, I want to know one thing. Do you want the fish or milk or flesh? And uh, I don't know. And they said, the fish is Gavaldic here. It's famous, the Livorno fish. So I said, let's do the, let's do the milk. Anyway, why mess with Shita? Who knows what's going on? You know, it's always safer with the milk. And so that's what we did. The whole story by itself. And then the guy said, well, I'm, they were happy to hear that because otherwise they're going to have to call a shokha to, to shech an animal for your group. <laughs> like the old days. You know it's not like you go, we go to the supermarket, you go to the butcher, and you don't know what happens behind the the, the scenes. You know, where, where the shech is done industrially elsewhere. In Italy, it's tiny groups. So you still mom, you're going to shech somebody, you're going to, you're going to go and... Uh, and take a cow, take a bull, you know. <laughs> That's how life was lived once upon a time. Now, here's where I'm going with this. When times are good, there are a lot of Talmud Chacham around. Yeshivas graduate some competent people. It's hopefully, there'll be a good supply of competent shokhtim. Right? When times are not so good, and people are looking for a job, every time taking Harry, he's going to claim to be a shokhtim. And how are you going to know? And to tell you the truth, that's only half the problem, the phonies. There are people who are what we call B-level scholars. They learn the Al-Khashrita with somebody. They didn't really understand it. And especially when some Shiloh comes up and some funny situation comes up, they don't know what to do. Right? Theoretically, a person be a big Talmud Chacham and goes to Yeridea and all and Nechulin. Guy's a big Talmud Chacham like that. Chances will be he'll go into the rabbi or die and not be a Shochet. Chances are. And so I'm just trying to tell you existential problem with the Shechita. So if you're Yaakov Wal, you write a whole book in very kit, kitzer, 
as a handbook, that's one way of dealing with the problem. At least put good information in the hands of the shokhtim. So, wherever somebody's a shokhtim, and even the community, they can read it themselves, it's easy to read safer, and then they can see if the guy knows what he's doing, if what he's doing, um, what shall I say, um, conforms to what's written in the textbook. So, our hero did this in Poland in the early 1700s. The situation with the Kashas was terrible. The Shechita situation was bad news. A lot of Shokhan were either phonies or, as I say, B or C, C level. They didn't know what, exactly what they're doing. Couldn't trust them with the Pekimas, with the knives, with the. With, with, with a lot of Shilas over there. You know, it's easy to mess up to be a Shokhan if you press down. I mean, the public probably doesn't know what I'm talking about. Yeah, if you look cool, and anyway, you know, there, it, it's, there are many ways of making a bad Shechita without you knowing that they did it, without it being evident. You see? Uh, by the way, we know that the Shechita situation in Poland, especially in the area I'm talking about in Galicia, was defective from an outside source. Who is a contemporary of our hero? The answer is the Baal Shem Tov. Uh, Alexander Shore, the two Shore, lived from 1673-1737. Well, the Baal Shem Tov was born around 1690, lived in 1760. Siri overlapped a fair amount. And if you ever take the trouble to read what's called the Shifre Abesh, these are tales of Balshemto. Which you never know if they're true or not, but many more. Modern historical scholarship has established that many stories are true. Not all by any means, but many, more than people have thought. Here's my point. There are many stories involving a shakhid. The Balshemto will come to a town and something going wrong, and by the time he finishes his mystical investigation, because the combination of Sherlock Holmes and Darizal, by the time it finishes, it turns out the Shochet had bad machshabas, or the Shochet lied, or the Shochet did this wrong, the Shochet did this wrong, and if you're a Baal Shantar, you'll get the Shochet to confess, you know what I mean? That's the whole point of the Maisa and the, and the Shifri Abesh. All of this reveals the fact the situation was not great. As a result of this situation, our hero resolved to concentrate on Chulim, and most importantly, to put out a very practical uh, handbook, I guess you'd say, to be a guide for the Shochtim, which, but but he wanted to do in such a way, because Hilcheshchita and, you know, Trefus, it's hard. It's complicated, let's put it that way, many opinions. So to get clarity out of it, it's not so simple to go through the Shulchan Ar. And so what he did was, and he writes this in the Hakdam to his book, he says, I'm going to try to, uh, uh, what's the right word, find the golden mean. Try to safer of halachas, but I'll do it on the style, what you and I call Archa Shulchan. Which means, you say it in, but you give the background. Hopefully you synthesize the information, because that's more important than anything else. The ability to synthesize the different uh, opinions. And um, then, and write it in very simple, clear language. And that way, the average shochet, who may be ashamed to admit in the public he doesn't know this all stuff so well, in my book, he'll know it well. Michael, I'm going to write it that well. And he did. And he called it Simla Chadasha. And the reason he called it Simla Chadasha, the new garment, because he said, I'm, I'm, I'm doing it on the style of the Levush. The Levush wrote his famous Levush, Shulchan Aruch, Palmer Ramah, not too long before. And Levush is on the style, as, 
I mean, it sounds funny what I'm going to say, but I'll say because you, you, the listener, will understand better um, if I put it this way. The Levush is like the Archa Shulchan. Really, I should say the other way around. The Archa Shulchan is like the Bush, because the Bush came first. But most people are familiar with the Archa Shulchan. I think, I think you are. And it's this uh, a chatty style in which you, uh, it's thematic and synthetic. And this is a vast importance. I spoke about this at great length when I did the Archa Shulchan. Uh, you know who's all like that also? Chayonim. Has this power of the thematic and the um, synthetic. You can put a lot of opinions together, come out with a clear deborum. And he wrote this book, therefore, that the old one was called Levush, garment, and mine's called the new Levush, Simla Chadosha. Right? And he wrote it in such a way, it's like 30 chapters, and you can read a chapter a day, and chaz it over, just the same way that the, uh, the Chayonim writes. And uh, if you're a shochet, just review this material. It's not that long. And uh, I'm writing it in such a way that it's very clear. And uh, taking the trouble to write it well. And not many rabbis do that. He cared about the style, the rhetorical style, the clarity of it. And, and as a result, this little handbook, the Simcha Dasha, took off. And that's why he's a famous person. Because... Not that he had a big, a distinguished career in the normal sense. He's not like a Nodi Behuda or Shagasari that, you know, they went to famous communities because he wasn't interested, apparently, in being a rabbi. I can imagine, this is just a guess of mine, the time he lived, the rabbinate was not a necessarily a great position. People were fighting over it all the time. Families contended. Like different mafias, you know, this clever wanted this thing, and that clever wanted that. The big, great families of Poland, the elite families, battled each other over these little stellas. It wasn't a pretty picture. The shore, what he's from, is one of the great families. But who was also in that area, Landau, the family of Yehuda. They're also fighting over all these little stellas. So this is what rabbinical politics was like in his time. Landau's versus the shores, versus the Halperns, you know. And like I said before, I never say, Yotza Katsaman. One, I'm going to go and fight and get involved with Elosh and Har and intrigue. To be the rabbi of a small community, the heck with it, you know? And so, he just moved to uh, Zalkiev, which was a larger community. Very well-known place, Zalkiev. That's actually where the printing press was located. And he was already treated well there. See, at Turgdul Mamakam Echanos, he was a person in the community in Zalkiev. I'm, I'm talking about our hero, who uh, was not a rabbi, but on the other hand was clearly one of the people in the community who now learned a velt, therefore he had a lot of covet, and that was fine with him. And he was able to devote himself, therefore, because he was freed from the burden of the rabbinate with the dentures and the, this, all the politics, to, be able to devote himself to pure scholarship. You know what I'm He ran a business, and in his spare time, since he's the boss, he can do whatever he wants, in his spare time, he devoted himself to very narrow and clear literary goals. And all I can tell you is that Simcha Dasha took off the charts. Because ever since then, when it was published in the early 1700s, now until today, there was a very popular book among the shochim. Now, you're not a shochim. Most of, I doubt very much people listening to me are shochim. You never know, but I doubt it. But they'll tell you. Now, to be perfectly honest, um, when I learned shchita, not to ever practice anything, but yeah, I have friends and all that. It was based of it. That was a more modern literature saber. So I just asked a friend of mine who's a shogun. He said, yeah, they still use... 
they still use Simchadosh all the time. Many people do. And uh, used to be in Europe that a lot of times if they would give you a Kabbalah, which means give you like a Smichad B'Yashokad, they would write in there, I'm giving you this on condition that you constantly review the Simchadosh. As a result, it took off and became all over you. It became bestseller. Now, a bestseller among that population. But I got news for you. You always need a shochet. Every community, Europe, once upon a time, was full of shochet because Europe had hundreds and hundreds of communities. So every one of them needs at least one shochet, if not more. There was always a, a population of the shochet, and they better well know what they're doing. Because the whole point of the Baal Shem Tov stories, and you know this without me telling me, is if you give people trafe, you're messing up the neshama. They say it stops up the arteries. What's the expression? Timtum alay. Now, as we regard kashas and shit and things like this, very seriously. It's not a little thing. So anything that can contribute to the upgrade of the shita, and that's what this did, right, um, is, a, is a great public service. Now, uh, I remember I heard that, um, you know, this fireman is a, he didn't say you need glot. I mean, he's, he's, he's regular kashas. I mean, he said if you can move away, well, I'm going to go into that. The, um, there's old-fashioned classic Ashkenazic Jewry, you know, the the regular kashas of our of our ancestors, and uh, it, 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 and it reads in this synthetic way. So, in other words, all I'm saying is, if you're learning chulin now, if you're interested in the subject whatsoever, you get old simchadosh, you'll find it very easy to read. I got this years ago, um, and didn't look at it for a couple of years. I only got it because I had the kudos long ago. Uh, but then a time came when I did use it. But then I can say more like the base oven. But I want to tell you something. The Simchadosha was reprinted like a hundred times. And many people wrote commentaries on it. Now he himself, the author, wrote it in such a way as like the tour, you know what I mean? Let's see the other day. Just the din. But then, if you have any questions where he got it from, or if there are any questions, and there are, of course, in how the sugi works out and why he reached a certain position of sock, he wrote a big commentary around it called Tavuah Shor. Not Tavuah Shor, Tavuah Shor. And that I've looked in very rarely, I must say. Uh, but it's all full of the pilpulim and the, and the lumbus that goes into the laws of the shrita and, the, you know, the trefus, the batikas and everything. Um, in other words, that became the safer... That's already for a shochet who's a Talmud Chacham. Get it? The regular shofet, shochet, I'm sorry, has to know the rules more than anything else. Doesn't have to know the lumbus, he has to know what to do. But the person who's more than that wants to know, you know, where it comes from, and um, that's what he did. So between these two, you got the Simul Chadosha. With the Tavu Sharp, that became the classic book on, um, on Shechita, if you're Ashkenazi Jew. In the 1700s, 1800s, and really into the 1900s. I think the Hasidim still use it. I think everybody uses it, actually. It's that level. Now, that's why he's unusual. So, there, there are all kind of people we know of in Jewish history. Some had unusual lives. These would be a famous communal rabbis that had fights and this and that and the other. And some people, we know them, they didn't have unusual lives, but they wrote a book that hit the bestseller list. Lots, there are hundreds, there are thousands actually of Sfarn written by people over the centuries and published, but they don't go anywhere because for whatever reason it didn't touch 
a button with the public. It could be the high quality safer. You understand? It could be, seriously. Could be. But it doesn't matter. Because, you know, it, it would either the style of writing wasn't good, it's obscure, or it's too this, it's too that. Rare is the person who's able to publish something that obviously he got it right, it hits the spot. Right? In other words, it gets reprinted later on and people are interested in it. In the case of some Khadosha, oh boy, I bet you there's twenty um commentaries been written on it. You know, I mean in like in Hungary and places like that over the years, in Poland, which goes to show you how popular it was. Now he wrote some other things also. But the Sim Khadosh, I mean, is what really put him on the line. For some reason, they always call him the Tuashor. And I guess that's from a Lamdasha perspective. No, that's where he showed what a big Lamdan he was, which he, of course he was. But from a practical perspective, they would give out, if somebody wanted to be, learn to be a Shokha, that's a Parnosa, one hopes. Someone learns Shokha. Uh, they would say in Eastern Europe, they'd say like this, listen, you know, we're not making you go through the Yorodin and all the rest of it, but you better know Sim Chadosha very well. You'll get tested on Sim Chadosha. And we expect you to review it all the time. And the pious Shokhet of old did that. You know, uh, the pious Shokhet of old isn't, doesn't have time to go through the Rambam, uh, you know, Kachim and Taras. That's not what his job is. You understand? If you're a Shokhet, your job the extremely responsible job is to get the shechita right, because otherwise you're, you're um, this is this is what you're feeding the Jewish people, and um, it's a widespread belief that a lot of the bad stuff and bad opinions that have entered. I'm I'm telling you now an old traditional point of view. A lot of the reason people went off the derech in the last couple hundred years is because the shechita was no good, therefore you trafe, and therefore they have bad machshavas, bad deus. You understand? Bad deus. Now, is that a testable hypothesis? No. That's an old-fashioned, very Jewish way of looking at it. If you read, what is it again? The Kloisenberg Rebbe stories, you know, when he was in the um, concentration camp. He was there for a year in, uh, in Dachau, wherever he was. And um, my father was there also at that time. He knew him. And as I recall the story, the Kloisenberg Rebbe only ate potatoes, raw potatoes, something to that effect. I'm going somewhere with this. Bear with me. And but the others, he told them they can eat trafe. Listen, in concentration camp, you can eat trafe. <laughs> you get it? It's a constant fudges. So from the concentration camp. So, uh, but he didn't. So they said, "How come you know you're telling us we can, but you don't?" And uh, notice, is this a matter of extra piety with you? And he said, no, the clothes were grabbed. He said like this, here in the concentration camp, you find yourself in a lot of tricky situations that call for quick thinking and right decision. The Nazi guard says this, they say that. I'll give you just one example off the top of my head. My father was in Dachau also. And one time they said, who knows how to chop down trees we're sending people out. And immediately he said, I want to do it. Because he knew when they're going to go out, they're going to be near a place where you'll find food in the forest. You understand? On the other hand, he had to calculate. Well, they find that he's lying, and he wasn't a, a, an experienced uh, log, uh, you know, wood, woodsman. Will they kill him? It's a cheshman and nefesh. You know, I mean, it's a, a shikladas, I mean to say. So, the clients that we're going to say, I always find myself in a situation in a split-second correct decision. And if I eat something trafe, 
even though you're allowed to, it'll be metamta malev, I'm afraid. And it will, it will uh, you know, hurt my ability to analyze the situation uh, cold, logical. I need, you know, the, 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 I can't have any tarfus. Even though I repeat, nothing wrong with it. If you're in Auschwitz, you're in Dachau. But I don't want to cloud my judgment. So it's a well-known line that the, there have always been problems with the shikta, all the rest of it. It's clouded the judgment of a lot of people. In other words, if you went back to America years ago, first of all, the shikta is never great. You know what Bismarck said, the public should never see how the laws are made and how the sausages are made. So I don't want to go into this now, but yeah, everybody knows shikta situation is never great. But, uh, which is why some people don't, you know, historically don't even eat, you know. I respect that. But uh, years ago it was worse. And I'm talking about America. And a lot of people, uh, you know, let's put it this way, had bad decision-making process, bad ashkavas, because they're, they're eating treif. So anyone who who moved the ball in the good direction, like the Simul Chadosh, like the Tua Shar, this is a, a major accomplishment. So uh, that's why uh, he became famous. And uh, some, as, so, so he joins the ranks of those whose lives are not so interesting, but they were able to discern a need and supply it with, uh, with writing. And that took off. And, uh, you know, that, that's where we're still holding today. Anyway, now I'm going to get back to work. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidovidkatz.com.